0: Today we're going to be talking about the arguments uh, uh between whites and blacks uh uh, uh in the South after 1865 over Reconstruction, but we're also going to be talking about how historians have argued about Reconstruction. Uh, And those of you who are going to be majors uh, uh, in history, or maybe who are majors in history, uh, during your junior year, uh, you take a course in the history department called historiography, which is the study of history. How do historians approach history? What is their philosophy of history? How do they enter into different interpretations of history? Uh, That's what historiography is all about. That's what this course, uh, uh, or that course, historiography, is all about. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of historiography, Reconstruction historiography, uh, today. Now, we saw uh, at my last lecture that Reconstruction was one of the most contentious periods in American history, and contentious uh, between the ex-slaves, the freedmen, and Southerners, uh, because it involved a fight for control of labor, a fight for control of political institutions, a fight for control of the rules of Southern society. But Reconstruction has also been a contentious period and a contentious matter among American historians. So before I talk about the argument over Reconstruction between freedmen and Southern whites, uh, I want to talk about the uh, argument over Reconstruction among American historians, as an introduction to the actual debates and arguments of the actual historical actors. Now, the historical debate over Reconstruction, the debate among historians over the meaning of Reconstruction, uh, not surprisingly... Uh, is a function of contemporary political attitudes, contemporary racial attitudes, attitudes that people held at the time the history was being written. And it's thus not surprising that one of the most conservative periods in American history regarding race, the years between the 1890s and the 1930s, produced the most pro-Southern group of Reconstruction historians, the so-called Dunning School of Historians named after William Dunning D U N N I N G who was a professor at my own Columbia University although not at the time that I attended Now although he taught in the north William Dunning was a southerner and surrounded himself with graduate students who were also from the south who went on to teach and write at other institutions other universities uh, in his image, and that is so often the case that you are influenced uh, very deeply by your graduate advisor, by your uh, dissertation advisor, and you absorb a lot of uh, his ideas, uh, hopefully good ideas. Well, in this case, the students of William Dunning absorbed his ideas, creating what was known as the Dunning School of Reconstruction Historiography, one that dominated its field until the 1930s and still affects what many Americans think about Reconstruction today. Many average Americans, non-historians, since it heavily influenced, the Dunning School that is, heavily influenced the two sources most Americans use to form their attitudes about Reconstruction. Now, this being the United States, it's not surprising that both of these sources are movies. Both of these sources are films. Birth of a Nation, which Uh, I spoke about uh, either last time or the time before, which is a southern white view of Reconstruction that glorifies the Ku Klux Klan, and of course Gone with the Wind, until recently the most watched film of all time, a film that depicts northerners during Reconstruction as rapacious, grasping foreigners, uh, 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 and southern whites, Witness Scarlett O'Hara or even Rhett Butler uh, as brave and honorable in their own way. So the Dunning School of Reconstruction historiography, while discredited among historians today, it has no credence uh, among historians today, still lives on today uh, among the rest of the American population because of the influence of film. Now, Not surprisingly for a school of uh, historical thought that inspired Gone with the Wind, uh, the Dunning School historians argued uh, that the South, and specifically Southern whites, were the aggrieved parties during Reconstruction. They argued that the South accepted defeat and worked towards sectional reconciliation, and this is a theme of birth of of, of a nation as well, But the South was victimized by corrupt carpetbaggers, the northern Republicans who came down from the North, unprincipled scalawags, the poorer whites in the South who became Republicans, and especially ignorant freedmen who were not ready to participate in democratic government. Now, the hero of the Dunning School of, uh, of Reconstruction historiography is Andrew Johnson, For standing up to radical Republicans like Sadia Stevens, who we'll hear uh, more about a little later today. Uh, uh, Men like Stevens who only wanted revenge and not sectional reconciliation. According to the Dunning School, the Republican governments of the southern states during Reconstruction stole money on a grand scale and only the takeover of southern governments by whites in the years after 1877, and of course we'll get to this, saved free government in the South. So, according to the Dunning School, Reconstruction was the darkest page in American history. Now, following in the footsteps of the Dunning School, only ironically, not from a conservative political view, but from a liberal political view, were what were known as the progressive historians, of the 1930s. Now, these historians, and the probably the most uh, uh, most uh, uh, outstanding example of, of of the progressive historians is a historian named Charles Beard, B E A R D. Uh, these progressive historians inadvertently supported the cause of Southern whites during Reconstruction. And this would seem to be paradoxical on its surface. I just told you that the progressive historians were, well, progressive. They were liberal. How could they support the side of the southern whites during Reconstruction? Well, this is how. Progressive historians were politically radical during the Depression, the Great Depression of the 1930s. This is the time when they were writing. This is the time that Charles Beard was writing. They were focused on class issues, much more than racial issues, because it was the Great Depression. They were obsessed with the impact of money on American history and saw much of American history in Marxist terms. Some of them were Marxist historians. Some of them, like Charles Beard, were Marxist-influenced. They saw American history, in general, as a battle between greedy and exploitative capitalists and the mass of the people. So, progressive historians looking at Reconstruction saw Northern Republicans as greedy capitalist oppressors with their false free labor ideas which the progressive historians saw as only uh, being covers for capitalist exploitation. In their view the free labor Republicans didn't want to help blacks. They just wanted to open up southern markets for goods that the North was producing. So although they are on the opposite side of the ideological spectrum from the uh, Dunning School historians who were very politically conservative, the more radical progressive historians of the 1930s reached similar conclusions uh, about the North being at fault during Reconstruction, just for different reasons. Now, around this time, the 1930s, uh, the great uh, uh, black civil rights activist, writer, and scholar W.E.B. Du Bois was writing about Reconstruction from another perspective, Now, Du Bois saw Reconstruction as a noble experiment in interracial democracy. In other words, a completely different interpretation from the Dunning School or the progressive historians. Uh, Du Bois emphasized black agency, what he called black agency, uh, uh, which neither the progressive historians nor the Dunning School uh, acknowledged. Uh, uh, The idea that African Americans were not passive victims here, uh, uh, but actually made their own history. Now, Du Bois was ignored at the time. His book, Black Reconstruction, which came out in 1935, was ignored. Uh, 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 but by the 1960s, uh, around the time Du Bois was dying, uh, the American political scene and culture was changing, and Du Bois's ideas were beginning to find favor among a new generation of historians, a new school of historians. Now, These new historians who came of age in the 1960s, and a good number of them obviously are still around today, were influenced by the civil rights movement of the 1960s and the new left and radical movements of the 1960s. These new historians, of course, wrote in many historical fields, many historical areas, not just in the field of reconstruction, of course. But the new historians who happened to study reconstruction formed a school of their own which were called the revisionists. Now, the revisionist historians who came up in the 1960s and beyond stood the Dunning School historians on their head. Everything was opposite. Andrew Johnson and the Southern whites were the villains here, not the radical Republicans. Andrew Johnson and the Southern whites were racist and vindictive and reactionary. The radical Republicans were not vindictive as the Dunning School argued or agents of capitalism, uh, as the progressive school historians argue, but idealistic Democrats. Small d, Democrats, not Democrat Party. Fighters for black rights. Fighters for equality for all. Using, in the Reconstruction years, the benevolent power of the federal government, the 14th Amendment, Passed uh, or ratified in 1868, the Civil Rights Acts that I talked about earlier uh, uh, were foundations of the civil rights movement for the 1960s. These revisionist historians argued, in other words, the legislation of the 1860s was the basis for the civil rights revolution of the 1960s, and obviously, thus, uh, a good thing. And. The radical Republicans of the North in the 1860s were the ones responsible for this legislation. So they were heroes and not villains. The radical Republicans also, according to these revisionist historians, were responsible for the tradition of an activist, benevolent federal government, which by the 1960s, uh, uh, and well, by the 1930s, was making the New Deal very popular, and by the 1960s making the great society with spending on social services for the poor and working class, making this possible. These revisionist historians viewed these as good things and thus again, reflecting back on the 1860s and 1870s, felt the radical Republicans uh, were worthy of praise. So, unlike the Dunning School, the revisionists viewed Reconstruction as a great triumph. But, By the 1970s and 1980s, yet another interpretation, again influenced by contemporary events, began to challenge the revisionist interpretation. Now, these historians, who are known as the post-revisionists, the best example of which is the great southern historian C. Van Woodward, W-O-O-D-W-A-R-D, C. Van Woodward, who was the doctoral advisor of my doctoral advisor, James McPherson, so I view him almost as my intellectual grandfather. Uh, uh, These historians are known as the post-revisionists, led by Woodward. And they were influenced by the limits of the Civil Rights Revolution of the 1960s as it progressed into the 1970s and 1980s and the fact that uh, primarily political gains came out of the civil rights movement of the 1960s, uh, uh, and that economically and socially, in the 1970s and 1980s, blacks continued to lag behind whites. Post-revisionists projecting this back into the 1860s and 1870s saw the same thing happening in Reconstruction, which they say was a failure because it didn't go far enough and generally accomplished very little. The post-revisionists admitted that Reconstruction in the 1860s and 1870s gave blacks some political power, but they argued that it was quickly taken away after Reconstruction came to an end in 1877 and left African Americans almost as badly off as they had been during slavery. Landless, in debt, and controlled economically and socially, by the same planter class that had enslaved them before the Civil War. So post-revisionists, post-revisionist historians, and uh, as, I, as I mentioned, Woodward is a good example, emphasized the continuity, the sameness, the unchanging character of America and the South between the pre-war South and the post-war South. It's the same ruling class, they argue. Same people. And thus, the post-revisionists argue that the uh, uh, Civil War and Reconstruction, except of course for ending slavery, did not fundamentally change Southern society at all. Blacks were on the bottom before Reconstruction and they were on the bottom afterwards. And post-revisionists blame not only Southern whites for this uh, essentially conservative or even reactionary result of Reconstruction, but Northerners as well. Since Northerners would not press the changes that needed to be made in the South hard enough. For example, Northerners didn't press hard enough for land reform. This is the argument of of, of post-provisionist historians. Uh, And post-provisionists argue Northerners gave up the fight in 1877 when they agreed to pull the federal troops who were occupying parts of the South out of the South, allowing white supremacy, Uh, disguised as local control or states' rights, uh, 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 to oppress and subjugate blacks in the South for the next 100 years, up until the 1960s and 1970s. So that's the post-revisionist school. And that brings us up to the present day. And to Eric Foner, the Columbia University historian, a portion of whose book on Reconstruction uh, we read for today, uh, uh, you'll note that uh, our Foner book, uh, the the uh, the short history of Reconstruction, which I've assigned to you, uh, you know, to, to, to read uh, in this course, uh, is a uh, is is a, uh, a shortened history, a con, uh, you know, an excerpted history from uh, Foner's larger and much much more massive history, Reconstruction. Uh, the the. Uh, The the e-reserve reading for today was was from that larger book. Okay, so to Eric Foner. uh, uh, Now, in the grand historical tradition, Eric Foner borrows something from every historical school that I just mentioned except the Dunning School. From the progressives, he borrows the theme of class conflict, you know, then the limits of the free labor idea. From W.E.B. Du Bois, he borrows the idea of black agency. Black says historical actors during Reconstruction and not just passive victims during Reconstruction. From the revisionist historians, uh, he uh, takes the theme of Reconstruction as an idealistic experiment in interracial democracy, especially black democracy, unprecedented. In other words, the idea that someone who was a slave in early 1865, being a congressman or an assemblyman just seven or eight years later, of course, is an incredible change. Foner also borrows from the revisionists the idea uh, that federal power had to be brought to bear against the South to enforce equal national citizenship rights for all. From the post revisionist Foner takes the idea that Reconstruction did not go far enough that it was abandoned too early, and that because of this, the cause of black equality was delayed 100 years until the Civil Rights Revolution of the 1960s. But I think of all the schools of historians of Reconstruction that I've just gone through, Foner is probably closest to the revisionists uh, uh, in his emphasis on uh, interracial democracy and federal power. But Foner brings a powerful theme of his own, to the understanding of Reconstruction. And that is the battle on the economic front between the freedmen and their ex-masters, the planters, for control of the labor uh, uh, and, in a broader sense, for control of the lives of the freedmen, a struggle that spilled out from the world of work into the political area, into community life, and even affected the family. And this is the crucial aspect of Reconstruction that I want to talk about now. Now, last time I gave you a political history of the first seven years of Reconstruction, a top-down history. Uh, I talked about the differences between political and social history earlier in the course. Uh, You know, I gave you a more traditional look of uh, presidents and senators and important legislation last time. But today I want to talk about some social history. I want to look at Reconstruction from the ground up so to speak, through the struggles of average people, Southern whites, freedmen, uh, on the ground level during Reconstruction, as each, each sought to impose their will on the other across the economic landscape of the post-Civil War South. Now, we've already discussed what Southern whites, uh, the planters in this case, uh, and the freedmen wanted. Whites wanted uh, uh, a economic system as close to slavery in terms of labor control as they could possibly get, of course, without slavery because it was now uh, illegal. And freedmen wanted as much autonomy and control over their economic lives as possible. Now, these two goals were essentially irreconcilable, meaning there would be trouble, there would be violence, and at the very least there would be disharmony. And here we see the beginning of the breakup of the ideal of free labor, which I spent so much time talking about uh, before the Civil War. It just doesn't take in the post-Civil War South. Why is that? Well, for the free labor system to work in the South, there can't be the kind of class disharmony that we see in the South after the Civil War. Fundamentally opposed interests here between the freedmen and the whites lead to class war, which essentially wrecks a free labor system because there must be a permeable barrier, uh, barrier in other words, a, a border that you can cross, class mobility between classes and a chance to move up in a free labor system that is working. Since this class mobility did not exist in the post-war South, The North's free labor model had no real applicability, although many Northerners did not realize this at the time. What the post-war South was left with was a struggle between freedmen and Southern whites over extremely limited uh, economic resources in a static social structure with no real free market. Now, what were the specific aspects of this uh, struggle, its major themes? Well, the first theme is the end of paternalism. And you'll recall that I talked about paternalism earlier in the course. Now, the white planters no longer felt any paternalistic feelings at all towards the freedmen, Uh, no desire uh, to help the freedmen. First, because the planters had few financial resources themselves, uh, 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 and, uh, uh, and, 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 and perhaps even more important, the slaves were no longer slaves. They were free. And so the planters had no feeling of obligation to them. Uh, in effect, the planters said to the, uh, uh, the freedmen, uh, well, you're, you're on your own. Fend for yourselves. The saying of, of the 1860s was root, hog, or die, meaning, meaning from the planters to the freedmen. We took care of you before because you were our slaves. But you wanted to be free, so you're free. You're on your own. Now... The second aspect of uh, or theme of that struggle between the planters and the freedmen uh, uh, was the desire of the white planter class to deny economic autonomy to the freedmen. Planters refused to sell or even to rent land to the freedmen because they wanted to keep control of freedmen's labor. The planters tried to get the freedmen to just go back and work in gangs in the field, just like in the days of slavery only now for wages. The planters tried to impose labor contracts on freedmen, which would bind them to work on one specific plantation. In other words, uh, the planters did not want the freedmen to be able to use the free market in true free labor fashion to better themselves by getting one plantation or one farm to bid up wages against the other, to use competition between employers for uh, uh, the Freedmen's own benefit, as any worker would want to do in a free market system. And in their effort to control the labor of the Freedmen, the planters received assistance from the very institution that was supposedly set up to help the ex-slaves in the South, the Freedmen's Bureau, which I talked about earlier. Now, as I mentioned, the Freedmen's Bureau was a federal government agency that (coughs) provided schools and poor relief and other assistance for Freedmen in the post-Civil War South. Andrew Johnson and most white Southerners hated the Freedmen's Bureau for its interposition of federal power, mostly through its separate court system, uh, into state and local affairs, violating the principle of states' rights, which was so important uh, in the South. But in many ways, the Freedmen's Bureau was the planter's best friend because it had as its goals, another of, of its goals, the economic recovery of the South as a region. And this meant, to be direct and blunt about it, getting the cotton picked and getting the cotton marketed. That's really what it was all about. And this meant, again to be direct and blunt, getting the freedmen back into the fields as a controlled labor force. That's the goal. You need people to pick the cotton. So the Freedmen's Bureau, Bureau, although it might help out a freedman with the details of a labor contract if it was really onerous and unfair, still wanted him to sign that labor contract and help the planter class in getting large numbers of ex-slaves to sign labor contracts and go back into the fields as laborers. Now, the Freedmen's Bureau believed that this was the first step to uh, free labor autonomy for the Freedmen, but given uh, Southern economic conditions at the time after the Civil War, uh, this was unrealistic. So, however the planters and other Southern whites may have disliked the Freedmen's Bureau and uh, complained about its assault on states' rights, they did owe owe it a debt of gratitude for helping them exert control over their labor force, a goal which was much more important to the planters uh, than states' rights. States' rights is a theory, but in America money talks. But the Freedmen themselves did not accept the planters and the Freedmen's Bureau's uh, bureau uh, uh, attempt to reimpose planter work discipline, and they used the weapons at their disposal. After all, The planters desperately needed the labor uh, uh, of the freedmen uh, 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 as they sought to rebuild the southern economy. The freedmen attempted to try and carve out as much labor autonomy as possible for themselves and their families. And how did they do so? Well, here are the ways they did so. First, withdrawal from the fields, withdrawal of labor. In the wake of emancipation, freedmen did less work than they did during slavery, not surprisingly. Especially females, many of whom withdrew into the home, imitating middle class white women at the time, respectable white women. They wanted to be that way too, so they withdrew from the fields. While whites claimed that freedmen were refusing to work, this really was just a way to control their own working lives. The working hours of freedmen were reduced from the days of slavery. Freedmen were just willing to make enough money to be self sufficient. They desired that their work be on their own terms and not dictated by whites. So that's the first way they carved out autonomy. They just withdrew from work. Second was the rise of what's known as sharecropping, another bid by blacks for control of their labor. Now, at first, as I mentioned, uh, uh, the planters tried to just reimpose field labor on the freedmen, gang labor, just like in slavery, just go, go out into the fields and work in a large group. But many freedmen insisted on working in small groups, sometimes their own family groups, with a set of specific tasks. So they could work largely outside the direct supervision of the planters. And many other freedmen, Uh, insisted successfully on the arrangement of sharecropping. That gave them even more autonomy. Now, under sharecropping, a uh, family would farm a piece of land owned by the white planter uh, uh, in exchange for paying him a percentage of their crop as a form of rent. In other words, the percentage of the crop would be the rent of the land. Now, this was good for the landowner because it lessened the need for the landowner to pay out cash and wages. Now, after the Civil War, the South was chronically short of cash. They just didn't have any money. And it also got the landowner largely out of the freedmen's working lives, at least theoretically, although there was still a conflict between the sharecropper uh, uh, and the freedmen over control, because the black sharecropper wanted to view himself as a partner with the landowner, a partner in the crop, but the landowner was trying to treat him as an employee. With uh, you know, with and if you you know, if you're if you're an employer, you tell your employee what his work routine is going to be. So once again, it's a battle over control of the workplace. In any event, if, at least at first, the idea of sharecropping, the practice of sharecropping, was a way for freedmen to maintain as much autonomy as possible over the conditions of their labor. Although uh, uh, as time went on, sharecropping became a form of, of peonage basically as sharecroppers fell deeper and deeper into debt uh, to the white landowners. Most of all, however, freedmen wanted land of their own the only way a true free-labored society could have been realized in the South was for blacks to have gotten land. Since whites wouldn't sell blacks' land, the only other way was through the federal government, which had confiscated land uh, from uh, some Confederates uh, during and near the end of the Civil War. In January 1865, General William Sherman, who we talked about earlier during his devastating march through Georgia and South Carolina that effectively ended the Civil War, gave a large amount of land uh, along the Georgia and South Carolina coasts to the black population who was residents there Residents there, uh, uh, since uh, the plantation owners, the white owners, had fled in the wake of Sherman's army. They gave the land out in 40-acre parcels, giving rise to the saying 40 acres and a mule. Now, this action by General Sherman, uh, codified in what was known as his field order number 15, was supposed to become the model by which the freedmen acquired land from the federal government after the Civil War. But all this stopped and was actually reversed by the Reconstruction Proclamation of the new president, Andrew Johnson, uh, uh, which I talked about in May 1865, since he pardoned most Confederates and gave them their land back, both in the area covered by Field Order No. 15 in Georgia and South Carolina, and also elsewhere, where freedmen had acquired more confiscated Confederate land. And freedmen found themselves outside of the only real route to lasting economic power in the post-war South. Congress, moreover, even the Republican Congress that fought so bitterly with Andrew Johnson, to the point of impeaching him, as we discussed last time, still refused to step in and reverse this decision. Most Republicans, it seemed, were willing to provide for political equality for freedmen, but not economic equality. Uh, As perhaps we'll see, we'll hear in a few minutes, Thaddeus Stevens was probably the most radical uh, of the Republicans in this regard. I think he really did want to give out land uh, to the freedmen, but but most Republicans did not. In fact, most Republicans, even radical Republicans, uh, believed more in the sanctity of private property. And land, of course, was, uh, after all, private property, albeit property of rebels, uh, believed more in that than in economic egalitarianism uh, 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 and the economic egalitarianism that land redistribution would have brought about in the South. And most Republicans, even radical Republicans, believed that free labor principles would be violated by outright land grants to blacks, ignoring the fact that thousands of whites had been beneficiaries of this kind of government uh, uh, largesse, or free handouts, if you will, uh, in the West through the Homestead Act, which was passed during the Civil War and gave out parcels of land uh, to white settlers in the West. It also ignored the fact, of course, that the slaves had not been compensated in any way for the labor they had performed before emancipation. And thus the Republican argument that land grants to the freedmen would destroy, quote, the habits of free working men and would be, quote, misplaced kindness may have missed the point. In any case, the inability of the uh, post war South uh, to, or, or the ability, inability of freedmen in the post war South to obtain land may have been the single most important factor uh, in their economic marginalization over the course of the next century, uh, and may even be a partial explanation for their political marginalization, for Jim Crow and disenfranchisement, since it's much harder to disenfranchise people with economic power than without it. While land would not have been a panacea, would not have been a cure-all, the South as a region, whites as well as blacks, was desperately poor and short on capital, on credit, and on market access during the century after the Civil War ended, there's still no doubt that land would have improved the lot of black Americans in the South by giving them the leverage and autonomy, uh, however circumscribed by general economic uh, uh, conditions in the South after the war, that property ownership conveys in America. Money talks. As it stands, however, uh, it's a road not taken the denial of land to the freedmen, one of this nation's great might have been. Now, if the freedmen lacked economic power in the Reconstruction Era South, they did possess some political power uh, uh, as voters and as elected representatives. And they had enough power to draft a series of groundbreaking new state constitutions between 1867 and 1869. Groundbreaking, in the sense that for the first time in the history of the South, the state, state governments in this case, uh, were now charged with providing social services to the people, something pre-war, pre-Civil War state governments, thanks to the influence of the planter class, had never done. Now, thanks to the influence of the freedmen and the absence of most white Democrats who were barred for voting on them, The new state constitutions between 1867 and 1869 provided for state-funded public education for all, although in practice this public education was segregated, but it it did provide for public education for for African Americans. State-funded orphanages and facilities for the insane. State-funded hospitals. Poor relief. Uh, an end to debtor prisons, an end to property qualifications for office holding, which is especially important for African American office holders, and a host of provisions for equal uh, political and civil rights, uh, including, of course, voting rights. Now, this very ambitious program of state services promised to create a new South, one that, especially in providing public education, might be the basis for a more egalitarian society, certainly politically and to some extent even economically in the future. Not completely egalitarian, to be sure. There could be no true egalitarian society in the South without land redistribution, which was not going to happen. But certainly markedly more egalitarian than ever before. So these state constitutions had, these new state constitutions, had enormous potential these new state constitutions, could create a new South. But could they last? Could governments elected under these constitutions survive? Could the interracial coalition that drafted these constitutions survive? And, most importantly, could support from the northern Republicans that was essential for the survival of these constitutions and the governments they established be forthcoming. You will see that the answers to all of these questions was no.